Thank you, Stace. Uh, I would like you to begin by just thinking in your mind about the external signs that we associate with certain occupations, uh, things that people might wear or display in order to let the world know who they are. Uh, think in your mind about what a police officer might look like, or a firefighter, or what about a nurse? or some high-end chef, or even a lifeguard. Now, if you were to see them all in a lineup, you should be able to identify uh, who is who because of the external signs that they exhibit. Uh, these, again, are exhibited so that we'll know who they are and to what group they belong to. Uh, we'll be able to separate them from those who aren't like them. And you know, Jesus said that his followers should also exhibit an external sign so that the world would know who they are. Uh, he said in John 13, 35, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You might think, by what? By my uh, Bible reading time. No. Uh, by my continuous prayer. No. Uh, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another. And you might think love? Well, doesn't everybody love? I mean, don't we all love our family and our friends and even our pets, right? But Jesus qualified this love or explained what it was to look like in the verse before, in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So there's the key there, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another and by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you have love for one another, if you have love for this community here, then you have the sign, the external sign. You have the mark of a Christian. Uh, there's a little booklet written by Francis Schaeffer, one of my heroes of the faith, uh, called The Mark of the Christian, and he talks about this in the book. He says in the beginning, he says, upon Jesus's authority, so he's saying this concept right now is predicated upon the authority of Christ given in that passage, John 13, 13. 34 and 35, he says, upon this authority, Jesus gives the world, the world, the right to judge whether you or I are born again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. I remember reading that for the first time over 20 years ago and being jarred, thinking, what? The world has the right to judge my Christianity? And Schaefer's explaining, yeah, that's what Jesus said. By this, the world will know that you are my followers if you have love 
for one another. So when the world looks at you, do they see that observable mark? Do they see the mark of the Christian? Because not only Jesus, but we'll see in the Old Testament, God reveals that he takes this very seriously. Uh, today, we're going to focus on Exodus 22, 21 through 27, and we're going to see this uh, concept unfold as we look at these seven verses. Let me begin by reading these together with you. Exodus 22, 21 through 27, it says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And then if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate." Well, we saw that the last two lessons in our study, we focused on the Ten Commandments. We really looked at Exodus 21 through 17 and saw the ten words, the ten commandments of God, which he spoke uh, in the hearing of the people. And then in Exodus 20, 18 through 21, we saw that the people agreed that God's words, God's commandments were good, and they wanted to obey them, but they asked that Moses would be their mediator, that he would go up and get these uh, commandments, these words, these rules from God, and then communicate them to the people because although God was tremendously awesome, it was also fearful for them. And that's really where we left off. And so Exodus 20, 21 said, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And Moses continued to get rules from God for the people. And the people were eager and rightfully so. They could know what their savior uh, wants from them and wanted them to do. And we should be eager in the same way because God is our savior too. And God now gives these rules and shows ways that they could take these 10 words, these 10 principles and apply them in the practical life situations that they were experiencing at the time. How could they be applied to everyday real life? And we see commandments about altars and worship we see commandments, uh, rules about protecting slaves. We see rules about capital crimes. Uh, if you were to do these things or one of these things, then the sentence is death. It's such a severe crime. Uh, commandments, rules about bodily injury and property damage. Even commandments and rules about severe religious and social crimes. And then we come to our text. Uh, commandments and rules about 
the oppression of the vulnerable in our community, the oppression of the weak in our community. So we're going to just dig into these seven verses and see if we can unfold some of the truth that's there. So let's look back at Exodus 22, 21. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So we might think, well, what is a sojourner? Uh, the Hebrew word for sojourner is ger, and it just means one who lives in a foreign land. Uh, we saw it actually in Exodus 2, chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, when Moses left Egypt and was living in Midian, and he married his wife, Zephorah, and they had their first son. And it says in Exodus 2, 22, uh, she gave birth to a son, and he, Moses, called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. There's the ger and shum. It means a foreigner there. I have been a foreigner or a stranger there. And that's really what it means to be a sojourner, is one who is in a foreign land, uh, one who is with people who don't have the same customs and traditions and manners. So we did see that there were people who left with the Hebrews, who left with the Israelites uh, during the time of the Exodus. And there were people that would join the community along the way as they journeyed. And in fact, it was in our DBR this morning, which uh, is so neat to see how God providentially works those things out. But in Exodus 12, 48 and 49, talking about in the future when they would celebrate the Passover, uh, there was to be one rule for the native and the sojourner alike. Uh, it says in Exodus 12, 48 and 49, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So one rule here, if you were part of the covenant community, if you had received the symbol of that circumcision, then uh, you were to take of the Passover, whether you were a native or a sojourner, because you were a part of that covenant community. And if you had not taken the circumcision, if you weren't a part of the covenant community, no matter whether you were a native or a sojourner, you were forbidden from taking the Passover. So the sojourner was part of the community and was included in the religious law in Israel. Uh, for example, this is just one place, Deuteronomy 16.11. Deuteronomy 16.11 is talking about when God's people were to celebrate the uh, feast that we know of as Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And it talks about the celebration and the joy that was to be there. Deuteronomy 16.11 says, You shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is with you within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there. They were included in the religious festivals. They were included in the religious law because they were 
part of the community, and yet they were different. Uh, they weren't descendants of Jacob, so they did not inherit the land the way that the natives did. Uh, they didn't have a clan or a tribe to protect them the way that the 12 tribes of Israel did, the descendants of Jacob. So God continually in the Old Testament gives his people these rules for the sojourner's protection so that they won't be mistreated. In Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the so sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. So although they didn't have land, there was provision for them. God made provision for them so that they would be uh, taken care of, that they would have food there. And there are many, many, many passages in the Old Testament that would remind us of God's care for and the people's need to protect and include the sojourner. And you might think, why? Well, the reason why is because these people were different. They were different from the rest of the community, but they were part of God's community. They were part of the family. And so God says they should be loved just like the rest of the family. We see that in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. So whether they were descendants of Jacob or they were sojourners who had joined the covenant community, they were all part of the same team. And that was important to God. So for us to apply this in real life, we need to, number one, be united with your sisters. Be united with your sisters. Uh, we know that when we uh, place our trust in Christ and turn from our sins, uh, we become a part of God's family. God is our Father. He's forgiven us. We're right with Him through Christ. And if God is our Father, that makes us sisters in Christ. Your siblings are the people that have the same parent or parents. We have the same father. So we are all sisters here. And interestingly, the New Testament uses the term brothers more often than any other term to describe uh, followers of Christ. More than disciple, more than Christian. Brothers to remind us that we are part of the same family. We can't forget that. We have the same father, we're sisters, we're part of the same family. You know, just a, a few months earlier than the time uh, that our text was written in, the Israelites were sojourners. They were in Egypt. It was a land that was not there. And now they had been released, and a few months later, they were tempted to mistreat the sojourners in their midst. 
And it's just kind of a commentary on that human nature, that human nature that we have that wants to mistreat those who are different from us. The sojourners, uh, again, were called from different backgrounds. Uh, they probably had different customs, different things that they liked to eat, uh, different things that they did, maybe even different ideas regarding absolutely disputable matters. And it created a sense of or a tendency to have an us versus them in God's community. And, you know, that wasn't true only during this time in ancient Israel. We see the same concept in the New Testament. Uh, if we look at 1 Corinthians 1, 10, and 11, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, and 11, Paul talking to the church at Corinth there, he says, I appeal to you, brothers. Remember, you're under the same family of the same father. I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that the whole community here agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, a people who have the same father again, we should be united because we're on the same team, even with those who are different from us. Looking back at Exodus twenty-two twenty-one, it says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Uh, the word wrong there, other translations translate that as mistreat. Uh, you shall not mistreat or oppress. Uh, the word oppress is interesting. It really means to press or push or to squeeze that person. Uh, it's actually used in Numbers 22.25. Numbers 22.25, which records the account of Balaam and his donkey, uh, it talks about the donkey there. In Numbers twenty two twenty five. 25, it says, And when the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, she pushed against the wall. Push, the same word there for oppress. And pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. Press, same word for oppress here. So that he struck her again. So this pressing and pushing and you might think, I know I don't mistreat or wrong uh, fellow Christians in my community who are different than me, but do you press them and push them and squeeze them when their thinking is not the same as yours on disputable matters? Do you think things or even say things or treat people uh, in a way that might be something like, why are you wearing that mask? Are you afraid of COVID? You know masks don't work. Or when someone leaves your group, can you believe she was wearing a mask? I think she was wearing two. Can you believe she got vaccinated? Does she not read or believe in science? Or the other side. Can you believe she's still not vaccinated? Does she not read or believe in science? Why is everyone down there not all wearing masks? 
we've got to admit, the last couple years has been rough. It's been rough on us as a community. It's been rough on our church. It's been rough on us as a team of women. It's put us in a hard place where relationships have become more raw and we've become more focused on stuff that really doesn't matter. We're fighting and infighting about disputable matters. We've got to choose now to stop, to unite, to be united with your sisters, no matter how passionate you are about your side in the disputable matter. Uh, that book that I mentioned, The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer, in the end of the book, he talks about post-World War II Germany. Uh, this is a nation that's been under the rule of Hitler. And there was a church in Germany that ended up divided. They were divided because some of the Christians uh, went in one direction under the government leadership, and other Christians went in another direction. And there was lots of pain and even lives that were lost as a result. Well, the church, at the end of all of this, uh, knowing the Bible, knowing God's commands, uh, knowing that they needed to be united, realized they had to come together. And Francis Schaeffer was talking to a man who lived through this. And he said uh, that these people understood the command of Christ about this. And for several days, they decided for several days to do nothing except search their own hearts concerning their own failures. Now, can you imagine if we did that, if we said, God, show me where I've been wrong in this. Show me how I haven't demonstrated the mark of the Christian. He said, concerning their own failures and the commands of Jesus. And then they met together. And Schaefer said, he asked the man, well, what happened then? And the man said, we were just one. You know, lives had been lost. Much pain. The country was decimated. And they realized that Christ said, if you're on the same team, it doesn't matter how passionate you feel. You've got to be united. We have got to be one. So whether you feel like you're the native or you're the stranger, it doesn't matter. We have to unite here. If we don't, the enemy is laughing at us. And the world is laughing too. And we literally have lost our identifying mark. And remember, we all know there are people outside there who are dying, who are dying right now and who have the potential to face eternity separated from God in a place we call hell where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's what we've got to link arms and battle against not one another regarding differences and disputable matters. There was a uh, early church father, Octavius, who wrote describing Christians in the second century. And he said, they love one another almost before they know one another. I mean, can you imagine that? If you were to find that someone, some woman was a Christian and you said, I already love her because we have the same dad. She's my sister, 
And he said they call one another brothers and sisters. And so should we because we have the same dad. And as a parent, I know if my kids were to come to church and maybe disagree with you about some disputable matter and end up mistreated when they were trying to seek Christ and seek Christian community, I would be bummed. I wouldn't be happy. And we see that God feels the same way when we mistreat those who are different. And also when we mistreat the needy among us. Uh, let's look at Exodus 22, 25, 22, 22 through 25. 22, 22 through 25. It says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Well, we know that a widow is a woman who lost her husband. And a fatherless child there is a child without a father. Now, back then, uh, this was important because widows could not inherit land in their own name. And if they were too old to find work, how would they provide for themselves? Uh, how would they provide for their children? If they had no relatives to care for them, they literally had no way to uh, sustain life. There was no welfare system in the ancient Near East, and so they were considered dead weight by the community. I mean, what could they do? So widows and fatherless were often then mistreated or exploited, and if they were given resources, they were treated as slaves. They were neglected, they were overlooked, and they just weren't taken care of. The New Testament addresses this as well. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1, Acts 6 verse 1, we see the same thing taking place. Uh, it says that the church was growing. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Their widows were being overlooked. They weren't being taken care of. Uh, we see James, uh, the book of James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And his book focuses on our need to put our faith in action, uh, to not only be hearers, but to be doers of the word. And James says in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. So this is perfect religion, he's saying, pure and undefiled before God. It's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he's saying you are to take care of the orphans and the widows, the needy who are in your midst. Uh, the word visit there really means to look after, look after them. And there are many, many, many passages in the Old Testament about God's concern for the widow and the fatherless just like there were many about God's concern for the sojourner. The same is true for the widow and for the fatherless. 
Again, there's passages in the New Testament, and one that really grips me is actually from the Gospel of John. I mean, I, I picture this in my mind, the Gospel of John, John 19, 26, and 27, because this is Jesus himself. Jesus is there on the cross. He's dying for my sin on the cross. And it says in John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother... Now, his mother, we know, was Mary, and scholars say by this time she was widowed. Uh, Joseph was dead. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that was John, the author of the gospel, and Jesus' best friend. So we've got uh, Jesus' widowed mother there, and we've got John, Jesus' best friend. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, standing nearby what? The cross. Jesus is there on the cross, bloodied and beaten and filleted, atoning for my sin and your sin, the sin of the world. And he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. There he is. I mean, doing the greatest act in human history, atoning for the sin of the world. And he's thinking about taking care of the needs of his own mom, his widowed mom, making sure that she was taken care of and that his best friend took care of her. We need to apply this principle in our own life by number two, taking care of your sisters. Take care of your sisters. We've got to do this. If Jesus did that in his last moments, we've got to do this too. Because God cares very much that we take care of our sisters. There are many um, widows among us today who aren't financially destitute, praise God. They either have family members or other financial means of taking care of themselves. And like 1 Timothy 5.3 would say, honor widows who are truly widows. Uh, if they don't have the ability to provide for themselves, then we need to help out. But even if they do have the ability to provide for themselves, they still have needs. I mean, they've lost their husband. The need is relational. They have relational needs. And today we have kind of a variety of widows in our midst. I mean, we have the obvious widows, uh, women who've been married for a while or short time, whatever, but had that relational connection and provision through their husband and they lost them due to death. But there are also women who are widowed, in a sense, because they've been wrongfully divorced by their husbands. Elizabeth Elliot, one of my heroes of the faith, uh, she talks about this. She lost her husband uh, when they were missionaries to the Alka Indians, and uh, this was a cannibalistic tribe, and they took the life of her husband. So she was a widow. Uh, she got married again, and she lost that husband due to sickness. So she lost two husbands. And when she lost her first husband, uh, she got a letter from one of her husband's very good friends, uh, a woman who was also a missionary. And the letter to Elizabeth said, don't ever forget that there are far worse ways of losing your husband than through death. 
Well, this woman had been rejected by her husband. So she lost her husband and she was rejected. And Elizabeth Elliot said, yeah. She said the bitterness, the resentment, the hurt, the humiliation of divorce is a loneliness that I know nothing about. She was married to godly men who loved her and loved the Lord. But she said for these women who are rejected, who have given their lives to these marriages and they're rejected by their husbands, that is a deep pain. And we need to be thinking about those women. And there are also women who are in excruciatingly difficult marriages excruciatingly difficult, where their husbands are not only non-believers, but are just very terribly hard to live with. And Elizabeth Elliot commented on them too, and she said, we may be lonely in ways we would not have been if we had not chosen to be disciples. So she's saying, if you have rightfully decided to stay in an excruciating, di excruciatingly difficult marriage, and you should, you might end up lonely as a result. And that's part of the Christian call is to obey Christ. And that means you choose to be his disciples and it might create an extreme sense of loneliness. And we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be watching for that. We need to be taking care of those sisters who are lonely and isolated. It's very important to God and it should be important to us too. And you know, often our widows are the most Christ-like in our midst. We see that Jesus commented on that in Mark 12, 41 through 44. Mark 12, 41 through 44, uh, Jesus was in the treasury. That's the part of the temple where they had the offering boxes. It says in Mark 12, 41, he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus sees, and he drew it to the disciples' attention. He sees, and he wants us to act. He wants us to see and act too. Now think about a passage like this, 1 John 3, 16. 1 John 3.16, talking about our need to love. Uh, it says, by this we know love. So this is how we know love. Uh, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for him. Is that what it says? No. It says, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers for the sisters, for the widows, for the fatherless. If we really love Jesus, if we really know the love of Christ, we respond to that by laying down our lives for the sisters, for taking care of each other. First uh, John 4.11 says the same thing. Uh, Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we ought to love him, right? If God so loved us, we ought also to love him. I mean, that makes sense. He loved us, we loved him. But that's not what it says. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the way we demonstrate the love that God has shown us. We love the sisters. We love the widows. We love the fatherless among them, among us. But we can get so busy and so tunnel visioned on our own track that we fail to see one another and we fail to take care of one another the way that we should. I've got to stop and see you. And you know what? You've got to make yourself visible to me. We got to work together on this because we're family. You're my sisters. And God expects us to act like it. If you know women here who are isolated and lonely, call them, text them, spend time with them. Uh, mistreating them isn't always about not giving them money. Uh, maybe we aren't giving our time. Uh, maybe they're no longer useful and we've cast them off to the side. We're family and we've got to take care of one another. And God, again, takes this seriously. Look back at our passage. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, Exodus 22, 23, I will surely hear their cry. Exodus 22, 24, my wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God's saying, if you mistreat them, if you don't take care of them, I'm going to intervene and I will impose a penalty consistent with what you've done or what you've not done. If you mistreat them, I will mistreat you. Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Well, another group that's mentioned here is the poor. Let's look back at our passage in Exodus 22, 25 through 27. Exodus 22, 25 through 27, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is a cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Just like there were many, many, many passages where God is concerned for and protects the sojourner. And then many, many, many passages about God's care and concern for the orphan and the fatherless. There are also many, many, many passages about God's care for the poor, for the poor in our community. Uh, for example, Leviticus 25, 35, and 37. Leviticus 25, 35 through 37 says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God 
that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. For I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. You see, the problem here was that the wealthy would lend to the poor, but they would lend with interest. They wanted a profit. They wanted to make something off of this. And not that lending in Israel was always forbidden. It wasn't always forbidden. But God's people were not to make a profit from lending to their own community, to members of the community. We see that in Deuteronomy 23.20. Deuteronomy 23.20 says, you may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that Yahweh your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now, let's look back and see what our passage says about those who did lend to the poor, those who had lent. Uh, Exodus 22, 26, and 27. If you ever take your neighbor's clothes in, in pledge, so you have lent now, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Uh, that cloak, it was a very large, just four-cornered piece of material that was worn as an outer garment during the day. Uh, and it was used at night as a blanket, uh, to keep this poor person warm so that they wouldn't freeze and shiver at night. And, you know, think about it. You had to be really poor to get to the point where the only thing you could offer for collateral was your cloak. I mean, that's all you had left. And the loan had to be pretty trivial if the collateral you were going to take was a cloak. This was a small thing. So why would you even take the cloak? Well, scholars say uh, probably because the lender wanted to make sure that the person he lended to, the poor person, didn't go off and get another loan using the cloak as collateral. Because if he got another loan, then he wouldn't be able to pay you as quickly because he'd have to pay off the other loan too. And you wouldn't get back what's yours. And besides, what better way to remind that poor person of what he owes you than to let him shiver at night? Wow. God has compassion on the poor. God says you gave him a loan. He owes you. You have his cloak, give it back. God says give it back. God is saying you want collateral? I'll be the collateral. God is saying I will hear, and I am compassionate. Now, I doubt that there are many money lenders here in our group. But we do deal with one another's debts. We do deal with one another's debts against us. In fact, we take collateral all the time. Others owe us, and we keep their cloaks until they pay in full. And if you think, what are you talking about? Remember what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts, the things that we owe, as we have forgiven our 
debtors, as we forgive the ones who owe us. It's forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven what we owe God, we must forgive others what they owe us. And so we are like that money lender clutching the cloak when we refuse to release others from their debt. To apply this in real life, we need to, number three, forgive. Forgive your sisters. And again, we saw this in the daily Bible reading. Again today, Matthew 18, 21 through 23, where Peter came up to Jesus and said, how often will I forgive my brother? Seven times? And then at eight, it's done, right? No more. And Jesus said, no, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then in Matthew 18, 23, Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared he said, here's a comparison here to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, a king who has a bunch of servants that owe him money. And we know, uh, we've all read the parable, we read it this morning, right? We know that uh, the servant came before the king, the servant's me, servant's you, and said, I don't have the money to repay those billions and trillions of dollars that I owe you in an impossible debt but have mercy on me. And the king said, no, you're going to be sold along with all your family. I mean, you owe me. And again, the please have mercy upon me. I'll do whatever it takes. And the king had pity on him, on me, on you, and forgave us. We've been forgiven an impardonable debt. But the parable goes on. Jesus goes on to explain it. And he says, but when that same servant, when me or you, went out, he found one of his fellow servants, someone else in our community, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. hundred denarii. Nothing compared to what this servant who was choking owed the king and was released from. And yet it's significant. I mean, scholars say it was probably three months of pay. I mean, if you think in your mind what you might make or what three months wages would look like to you, I'm getting to be kind of mad if someone takes that from you and doesn't pay you back. But again, it's nothing. Nothing compared to what we owed God. And so in verse 18 of Matthew, or verse 30 of Matthew 18, it says, he refused, that's you and I, we refused, nope, nope, not going to let you go, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Give me your cloak, I'm holding the collateral, you pay this thing off, you owe me. Verse 32 of Matthew 18, his master heard about this, the king who had released him from everything, and summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
You've got to release them of the debt that they owe you. You've got to give the cloak back. You've got to stop holding the collateral. We can't neglect the fact that we were freely forgiven our gigantic debt from a far greater lender than we will ever be. You might think, well, I don't really have anybody to forgive. I'm not holding anyone's cloak, so to speak. Well, praise God. But you will be at some point because we will all sin against each other. I like Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22, Solomon writes, and it's kind of funny. He says, don't take to heart all the things that people say. So when you hear somebody trash talking you, don't take it to heart, he says, uh, lest you hear your servant cursing you. He's saying your own servant, someone who's uh, socially underneath you, so to speak, is going to say stuff about you. That's what people end up doing. And then he says in verse 22, and your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You've done it yourself. You forgive yourself. You have grace. Oh, yeah, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. But when someone does it to you, the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up, right? We need to forgive. We need to release. We need to let it go. And you might be thinking, but if I do all of this, if I forgive those who really owe me, if I take care of the needy, if I am united even with those who are different, what if I do all that and end up taking, adva taking advantage of? Well, remember the, the passage that we looked at in the beginning, John 13, 34 and 35 where Jesus says, you are to love just as I loved you, and when you do, you will bear that mark of a Christian. It's interesting, but seven verses in the Gospel of John before that, just right before that, Jesus revealed that someone would betray him, Judas Iscariot. And you know, three verses after this, three verses after John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus revealed that someone would deny him. Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was denied. And in between that, he says, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. Was Jesus taken advantage of? Yeah, right, he was. And we're called to love just as Jesus loved. And if we love our church family the way that Jesus loved us, we might be taken advantage of. So what? It doesn't change anything. Imagine yourself as a parent who was about to die. You're about to die, and you gather your kids to you, and you give them your last words. Uh, what would you say to them? What would you say to your kids as you get them together and give them your last words? I'm sure you can think of all sorts of things. But we see Jesus doing this in John chapter 17. Uh, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus is praying to the Father right before he goes to the cross. And he's giving his last words, in a sense, to his disciples, to his followers, and to future disciples, to me and to you. In John 17, 20, he says, I don't ask for these only, that was the disciples who were there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
That's me and you. He's asking for us too. What is he asking? What's his final charge here? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus, there with his disciples and even talking to us, saying, as I'm leaving, I'm asking you to remember that you're all part of one family. You're part of one family, and you need to act like it. You need to be united despite your differences. You need to take care of each other, and you will have to forgive one another. And in fact, this is so important that the world's theology hangs on this. The way that I love you and the way that you love me, our relationships with one another display the love of God to the watching world. Now, we've got to choose now to put our differences aside. If we are on the same team, if we're in Christ, we put our disputable differences aside. We take care of each other. We forgive each other. We link arms and we get out there and do the work that Christ has called us to do because we're living in a world that is getting darker and darker by the moment. And it's only the enemy that is taking pleasure in our infighting. We've got to stop. We've got to do what Jesus wants us to do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this outstanding team of women here that you have graciously, sovereignly allowed me to be a part of. God, I pray that we would be like those Christians in post-World War II Germany who just search their own hearts and say, God, where have I failed? Where have I not been obedient to your commands? And I pray, God, that we could come together more united than ever before and be a force in your hands for good. God, I pray that we would not neglect the needy in our midst. And I pray that the needy in our midst would let us know that they're here and they're needy and that they would stay linked together with us, Lord, that we could take care of each other. Pray, God, that we would forgive one another. We wrong each other all the time, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. But God, help us not to be uh, sitting there with a stack of cloaks, holding on to collateral for the wrongs done to us. Help us, God, to give it back and freely forgive in the same way that you have freely forgiven us. God, we thank you that your word is so rich, that there's so much truth there, and there's so much more for us to do. And we thank you that we're on Team Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.